just a few minutes, we're going to be uh, looking at two passages of Scripture, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, if you want to uh, mark those in your Bible. And the good news is they are um, both close to one another, so you don't have a whole lot of flipping uh, to, to look at uh, both of those passages of Scripture. I don't know if anybody else uh, has uh, the problem I have, but uh, apparently I have a problem uh, following instructions. Because when we're singing the, the song that had parts, I, I found myself singing with the ladies instead of the guys, and I'm like, what in the world am I doing? But anyway, um, so if you did that, you're not alone, because I did as well. Uh, if you've uh, read these passages of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning before, or you've done some study, you will know that these passages uh, really speak to the biblical qualifications of being an elder. And as we look at these passages, uh, passages of Scripture, it, it tells us this is, this is what an elder um, is supposed to look like. These are the qualities um, that an elder is supposed to have. Uh, now notice these uh, are not my guidelines. This, this isn't. Th these are the qualities that Pastor Josh uh, thinks an elder should have, or these aren't the qualities that the church thinks uh, that an elder should have, or these aren't someone else's guidelines that, that we read somewhere else of the of the qualities of being an elder. But but this is what the Word of God says. It's what God's Word declares to us as to these are the qualities that an elder must possess. Last week we said that God implements his headship through church-recognized elders who shepherd the flock. I made an excellent little book available for you if you wanted to read it. It's still down there if you didn't pick one up. It's short, it's to the point, and uh, explains to us what church leadership looks like. Today we want to see how we know if someone is an elder or um, how do you spot an elder out in the wild? Well, you know, that last part is a joke, kind of, but, you know, how do you, how do you spot them? How do you know uh, who is an elder? At one time, Mr. P.T. Barnum, head of the great Barnum and Bailey Circus, invited Charles Haddon Spurgeon of London to speak in the large tent at his traveling circus. He made every concession to make the offer attractive to Spurgeon. Barnum would provide the musical talent unless Spurgeon wished to provide his own talent. He would provide an equipment or, uh, or any manpower that was needed that Spurgeon desired to have. Spurgeon could speak as long or as short as he wished. That's every pastor's dream. You speak as long as you want. There was only one stipulation. Barnum's Circus Association would take the gate receipts and they would pay Charles Spurgeon $1,000 per lecture. Now, $1,000 is a pretty generous offer in Spurgeon's day, that's for sure. Many would doubtless have said, what a wonderful opportunity to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not Spurgeon. Knowing it would be wrong for him to join hands with the world, he sent a reply to Mr. Barnum. Dear Mr. Barnum, thank you for your kind invitation to lecture in your circus tents in America. You will find my answer in Acts 13.10. Very sincerely yours, Charles H. Spurgeon. 
If Mr. Barnum looked up Acts 13.10, he found these words. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. It is said that not all Christians have such convictions or integrity in their life. Sometimes the church has been so set on getting the world into the church that we've thrown integrity out the window. If I was going to name the one quality that every elder must have, that quality would be integrity. And today I want us to see the qualifications for an elder. Last week we noted that initially the, the, apostle had a, the apostles had appointed elders in the churches that they founded. And then I said how, how Paul gave Timothy and Titus these lists, these, these, gave them these qualities to look for in men that they could appoint to be elders in the congregations, in the churches. And I noted how we should look to appoint as elders men who meet the qualifications seen in these lists in Titus and Timothy. The two lists that we have are very similar uh, in nature, and I doubt that they are meant to be this exhaustive list. In 1 Timothy, we have five items that are lacking from Titus, and in Titus, we actually, uh, actually adds five items that 1 Timothy does not have. Both of these lists focus in on godly character with the exception of one thing, and that is the ability to teach God's Word. So this is not a focus uh, for us on, on spiritual gifts. Like we got to see what kind of spiritual gifts an elder has to have to be an elder. Uh, it's not even a focus on we need to see what kind of ability that an elder has to have to be an elder. In the book, Biblical Eldership, Alexander Strzok says this, What God prizes among the leaders of his people is not education. It's not wealth. It's not social status. It's not success or even great spiritual gifts. What God values is personal, moral, and spiritual character. We must bear in mind that no one's fully sanctified. No one can perfectly meet all these qualifications that we're going to look at this morning. The whole process of growing up uh, spiritually and growing in our spiritual faith is a progressive one that will never be over as long as we live. We should always be growing spiritually. However, church leaders and elders should not have glaring violations of any of these qualities that we are looking at. And they should be growing in them, just like all believers should be growing in the fruit of the Spirit. The premise is, we should all live like an elder. Because almost all of the qualities we read are given elsewhere throughout the Bible for every single Christian including women. And so each and every Christian should be seeking to grow in these areas, especially those who desire to be an elder. And as I said last week, churches should not vote for elders so that they will start uh, serving, but rather they should see who is already serving, who is already functioning as elders within the body of Christ, and that they meet these qualifications that we're going to look at, and then they formally recognize them as elders. And I have to be honest. Some people do disqualify themselves from the office of elder as they do not meet the qualifications. And so with that said, I would ask that if you're willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we first look at Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9 and then we'll flip back to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. 
I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Titus 1, 5-9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and do not open and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Flip back over to 1 Timothy or do it in your phone or whatever you're using this morning. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, take this word this morning and penetrate our hearts. Lord, not just, not just the men, not just people that, that maybe you're calling out to be elders, but God, penetrate every heart here this morning with your word. Lord, may we lay ourselves barren before you this morning as we hear your word proclaimed. May we truly ask ourselves, does this describe me? And if not, may we get our lives in tune to you by your grace and by your mercy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to be pulling from both of these lists for this message this morning. The sermon in a sentence would be this. An elder is a spiritually mature man of integrity. An elder is a spiritually mature man of integrity. We will look at four main points. And I have to go fast, so that means that you've got to listen even faster. But that's what we got to do this morning. First of all, they must possess spiritual maturity. They must possess spiritual maturity. What I'm saying is that you do not make someone an elder unless you have had at least some time to observe their life and see that they are spiritually mature people. Additionally, there are people that have been a believer a very long time who are greatly lacking in, in spiritual maturity. Because one day they walked an aisle and one day they said a prayer... But they don't spend time in God's Word. 
They don't, they don't allow God's Word to penetrate their, their lives. And they don't desire to live by God's Word. Therefore, they're lacking in spiritual maturity. Why am I saying this? Well, well, they must be spiritual mature. Why, why, do, we, why do we say that's what, what they have to be? Well, because that's what the text tells us. If we know two observations. One, it says that they, first of all, it says that they are to be above reproach. They are to be above reproach. Both of these lists begin with a qualification that an elder must be above reproach. In Titus, Paul repeats it in verse 6, summarizing a man's home life, and then in verse 7 to summarize his personal character. Interestingly, Titus and Timothy don't use the same Greek word here when they talk about being above reproach, even though they essentially mean the same thing. To be above reproach means that there's nothing in this man's life where an accusation, charge, or criticism is to be brought against him. Basically, this is a man of integrity. This integrity is already seen in this man before becoming an elder. And so it's not a person that's kind of living this double life where, where you know, one day uh, while they're in church and, and while they're uh, here on Sunday morning, they live for Christ on Sunday and everybody's like, wow, that person's a really uh, super spiritual Christian, but then they live like hell the rest of the week. That's not what it's talking about. They don't have some sort of secret sin in their life that no one else knows about. That they're hiding from everybody. This person prays like the psalmist prays. Search my heart, O God. Heart, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. He judges his own sin on a heart level. Where God looks and sees. They're not just worried about this outward sin that people can see. They're worried about the inward sin of their life that no one sees. When this person sins, and we all sin, by the way, I hate to burst your bubble, but nobody's perfect. We all sin. This person confesses their sin. They ask for forgiveness. The people that know this man best would affirm that he models the fruit of the Spirit in his life. And his wife and his children would affirm that he models the fruit of the Spirit in the home. They are above reproach. Secondly, I want us to notice that spiritual maturity is progressive. Spiritual maturity is progressive. And what I mean by progressive is it takes time to grow spiritually, right? We, we live in a culture where we don't want to do anything that takes time. And many of us are suckers for quick fixes to our problems that can only be fixed by, by time and discipline. We do this all the time. We do it. Uh, we do it with dieting all the time, right? That's why the diet and weight loss industry is a seventy-one billion dollar a year industry, and yet ninety-five percent of all diets fail. But that doesn't stop us from going out and buying the latest supplement that promises just to melt your fat away. You don't have to do anything. You just got to sit home on your couch, eat potato chips and drink soda, and the fat melts away. And we go out and buy that, right? We're like, I want that. What I'm saying is we're the same way spiritually. We want an instant fix. So what happens is, is we get these spiritual peddlers. They promise us that if we're just going to read their book or if we'll just go to their conference or if we get slain in the spirit or we, if we just have enough faith to, to speak in tongues, then we're going to get victory over our sin and our problems and everything's going to be great and our life's going to be fantastic and we're left feeling <clears throat> empty and void because it doesn't work that way. 
Because there's no quick fix. It's not easy to grow spiritually. There's not a there's not a spiritual shortcut. There's not a there's not a spiritual life hack. There's not a miraculous experience. If only I could have this miraculous experience, one day I'd wake up and, and suddenly I'd be more mature spiritually. We don't have instant spiritual growth, church. Paul told Timothy that he had to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. He's using this athletic metaphor. It's like a man who's training for a race. He can't take a shortcut. Daily he has to watch what he eats and he has to spend time working out because he has to be in top shape for the event. This means that he will have days where he's just not going to feel like working out. But, but what keeps him going? What keeps the person that, that runs the marathon um, competitively, that, that does all these things, what keeps them going? It's the end. It's the goal. It's the, this is what I know I'm reaching for. And so he uses the goal to keep him motivated. Christian, your goal is a godly life that, and, 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 so that you would glorify God who loves you and saved you. And that should keep you motivated. Every single Christian should be aiming for spiritual maturity. How do I, how do I become more Christ-like, especially if anyone desires the office of overseer or elder? They must be disciplining themselves in godliness now. They must be aiming to be above reproach at home and at work. In all relationships, spiritual maturity is progressive. It will take time. It will take effort. It will take discipline. Now, in these next two points, we're going to see two specific areas where elders must be mature. The first is mature in their family life. Mature in your family life. Paul has told us that these elders, they have to be above reproach. And then he immediately launches into this man's home life, which shows us just how important this aspect is. He even gives us further explanation. He says this, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, then how is he going to care for God's church? And Paul is saying that if you have a man who does not know how to behave and handle his home life, then, then don't promote that person to lead in the church. Unfortunately, there are many pastors that would most likely be out of a job if this requirement is followed. There are two specific aspects that Paul brings up in the text. So we're going to look at them. First, a one-woman man. A one-woman man. I'm going to tell you right up front, over the years of being a follower of Christ, through my study of Scripture, my view here has changed. Still, I want to let you know the kind of the different interpretations of husband of one wife, and I will also let you know why I believe the view I'm going to share is the biblically accurate view. So, many people assume that this is speaking about polygamy. And so they say, well, when Paul says a husband of one wife, that's, that's talking about you can't have more than one wife at a time. And so it's speaking about polygamy. One problem with that. Polygamy, polygamy was not really that common in Paul's day. So why would he be addressing it? Some of the early church fathers felt that this means if you were a widower and then you got remarried, you could not be an elder. That view doesn't really come from Scripture because we don't find that in Scripture. Some say that a divorced man cannot be an elder or even a deacon. 
Some would say that it only applies to divorce after salvation. So if you got divorced after you were saved, then you couldn't be you couldn't be an elder or a deacon. Or some will say, no, um, uh, divorce period, you can't be an elder or a deacon. For a long time, I held the view that if you were divorced and then remarried, you couldn't be an elder. So you got divorced, then you got remarried. That's the view I used to hold for, for a long time. But my view has changed over time and study. First, let's ask ourselves this question. What is Paul's focus here in this passage of Scripture? Is he looking at past sins? Or is he looking at present spiritual maturity? Well, obviously, Paul's looking at present spiritual maturity. And so if a man used to be quick-tempered and arrogant and a drunkard, that doesn't mean that he can never be an elder, right? We wouldn't say that. Well, this man, he used to, he used to get angry all the time, so he can never be an elder. We'd never say that. If it meant that, then no one would ever qualify to be an elder. Paul is speaking to the present. He's saying this person is presently spiritually mature. He's not speaking about their past spiritual maturity. He's speaking, he's saying, I'm not talking about their past spiritual immaturity. I'm talking about right here, right now. Literally, husband of one wife is to be a one wife man. That's what it is in the Greek, a one wife man. It is meant to look at the quality of the character of the man in his home life. Is this man devoted to his wife alone? Is this man committed to his wife and his commitment is an actual reflection of Christ's commitment to the church? Is this man not a womanizer? Does he have control over his thoughts so that he's not enslaved to lust? This man is not looking at porn for an escape. He has a track record of being above reproach in his marriage. And so what I'm saying to you is that a man who has been married for 40 years and has never been divorced, but who can't control their thoughts as they continually lust after women, is disqualified from being an elder. Because he's proving he's not a one-woman man. He's looking at all these other women. However, if a man went through a divorce, and they've since matured, and they've dealt with any sins that led to the divorce, and he's been faithfully married to his current wife for many years, and he is mentally and physically faithful to her alone, then he's qualified to be an elder based upon the requirement that we have in Scripture. Paul is making it clear that a married elder is to have discipline and joy for their wife. Why? Because that reflects how they will lead the church. Therefore, if they don't have that, they are not qualified. This is not about divorce, but about their current spiritual maturity in their home. Let me also say that, that this does not keep a single man from being an elder either. As long as they have their thought life under control and are morally pure. Secondly, when it comes to the home life, the elder governs his children with grace. He governs his children with grace. Titus chapter 1 verse 6 tells us this, And his children are believers. They're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And Timothy the elder is to, to uh, with all dignity, keep his children submissive. What does all that mean? Right? I find it sometimes seems to mean different things to different people. 
Well, first, it's not saying that elders must have children. However, if he does have children, they must be under his control. However, this qualification required me to do a lot of reading because there's, there's a lot of debate here because is this speaking of believing children when it says believing children or is that really faithful children? Is this speaking only of children that are still under the father's roof or what about when the child becomes an adult? John MacArthur says something I don't agree with when he says this, it applies to all children whether they are at home or an adult. Even if only one of them is not a believer, this man can't be an elder. I disagree. Because that puts the sole responsibility of conversion of the child on their father. Rather than the work of God. Many godly fathers have children who rebel against the Lord despite that father's prayer, despite his example, despite his, his encouragement for them to live for the Lord. They still rebel. I understand what Paul would be saying here is that we need to be careful and examine a man's relationship with his children. Is he living in such a way that his children are attracted to Christ? And is he living in a way that he's proclaiming the gospel to his children? Or is he angry all of the time at them? Is kindness evident in his home? So he makes his conscious effort to train his children in the ways of the Lord. Does he pray with his family? Does he read the Bible with them? If he does these things, there's a high probability that he sees his children come to saving faith in Christ. If all or most of his children grow up and they reject Christ, then something may be wrong in the home. We should have a pause. We should say, well, I don't know if this man is really qualified because none of his children have come to Christ. However, if his children follow Christ and one goes astray, that doesn't disqualify him. I believe it's, each situation has to be carefully and prayerfully considered. Now, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive doesn't mean that an elder's children are perfect little angels all the time. And we're like, look at his children. They're such examples of perfect obedience. That's not what it's talking about. Right? Kids are kids. And sometimes we got to let kids be kids. Kids disobey their parents. I know that's hard to believe. Kids have temper tantrums. A spiritually mature man corrects his children. He trains them to be obedient and respect authority. There has to be a balance of kindness and firmness. When Paul states that an elder manages his own household well, this is this is all aspects of, the, of his home life, including the finances. He should make sure that he's working hard to provide for his family and that he is a faithful steward of the money that God has entrusted to him. He should not be out of control with his finances. The point that Paul is driving home is clear. If someone is going to be an elder, they must be a godly husband and father. And if he can't keep his home in order, then he will have no business. We have no business expanding his authority to the church which is the family of God. If a man is not devoted to his wife and children, then he shouldn't be put in the office of overseer where he's steward of the household of God because he's not going to be devoted to the church either. Next, we notice that an elder is to be mature in their character. Mature in their character. This is where we'll 
quickly go through this list. Now look at all these things that Paul lists for us concerning the character of an elder. Now I'm not going to be able to go real deep into all these issues, of course, because time doesn't allow for that. But I don't want to. Uh, I do want to briefly look at some things here for us. So first, what we're going to see is the character flaws. Paul breaks this down into some character flaws that an elder must not have, and then he gives us some character traits that an elder should have. So first, we're going to look at these flaws that an elder must not have. The first one is that they are not to be arrogant. Not arrogant. The word arrogant means being self-important. This is this means that their primary concern is their own interest. It's all about me. It's all about what I get out of this. And, and how do people see me? And how do people feel about me? And me, 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 me. What does this look like in the church? How do we know if somebody's arrogant in church life? Sometimes it's easy to spot. Sometimes it's not. This person makes sure that they stubbornly maintain their own opinion and make sure that everyone has to know their opinion. They're not satisfied with, with, I'm keeping my opinion, but you need to know my opinion. They don't care about anyone else's interests or feelings because they're too concerned with their own rights and their own opinions. So it doesn't matter what you really think. It just matters what I think. An arrogant man will often take the contrary view because they love to assert themselves over others and exert power over others to show that they are the ones that's really in power. They will never admit when they're wrong. You will never hear them say that they're sorry. Much less will they admit that they are a sinner. And they're never a team player. That's an arrogant person. Paul says, that person, they can't be enough. They can't be quick-tempered, not quick-tempered. A quick-tempered man is just that. They get angry quickly. We might describe them as short-fused, right? They will often use their anger to intimidate other people or to control other people to get their own way. James tells us, know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Some of the fruits of the Spirit are patience and kindness and self-control, which means when we lack these things, we're not being led by a spiritual mature, uh, by a spiritual maturity or by the Holy Spirit. A spiritually mature man will be led by the Spirit. Thirdly, not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. Notice I didn't say they never drink, but they're not a drunkard. In the Greek, there is a reference to someone who especially gets uh, drunk on wine. I'm not going to get into all the theological arguments on wine. Let me make two things clear. They did have alcohol in the Bible because people did get drunk. And secondly, the Bible does not prohibit drinking. In fact, wine in the Bible is mentioned more times in a positive connotation than it is in a negative connotation. Let me also be clear that there are dangers with alcohol, like many other things. And so an addiction to alcohol and being drunk is always sinful. I've already addressed this in, in other sermons, so I'm not going to go into all the detail. What I would say is if you choose to abstain for various reasons, you say, I'm, I'm, I'm totally abstaining from alcohol, don't try to hide behind the Bible and say that it's sinful for someone to drink. And don't try to hold everyone else 
to your non-biblical standard. Like, this is what I do. I abstain, so everybody else has to do the same thing that I believe I should be doing. Because when you do that, you become Pharisaic. It's not a sin for an elder to drink alcohol, but it is, is a sin for him to be addicted to it and be a drunkard. Fourthly, not a bully. Not a bully. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, I didn't read the word bully when we were reading that. I don't remember reading anything about a bully. The Titus passage says not violent. In the Greek it means to be cruel or brutal. And when you look it up in the Greek, the word bully is often used for translation here. In fact, I think the Christian Standard Bible uses bully. The reason this is the case is that it can also refer to someone who's verbally abusive. Obviously, an elder should not be someone who's going around punching people in the face or hitting them, but neither should they be uh, verbally abusing people. If they spank their children, they should not be out of control to the point of being abusive. An elder shouldn't be someone who just kind of explodes with anger and, and vomits all over people with their words and, and, and just beats them into submission with the words they're using. They shouldn't be so aggressive to the point that they're bullying others verbally. This would include using our words to tear others down and make them feel like they don't matter. It can't be a bully. Paul says, you're a bully, you're not qualified. Thirdly, they're not greedy. They're not greedy. What this is speaking of is this desire for acquiring wealth that disgraces a person. In 1 Timothy, Paul says that they must not be a lover of money. Money is not evil, but it's certainly dangerous, just like alcohol, right? I used to, I used to love to go hunting. I used to hunt quite a bit. I haven't been able to hunt a whole lot. Um, oh, I haven't hunted at all, I guess I should say, since <laughs> moving to Washington. But I used to love to go out and hunt. And when I'd hunt, I had a loaded gun with me, which is very useful when you're hunting. If I decided I was going to shoot whatever I saw moving, well, that's dangerous. It's the same with money. If we start acting carelessly with money, and we allow it to start controlling us because we just want to amass wealth, money's dangerous. A greedy man's not qualified to be an elder because greedy men are idolaters. Money is their God. And they will be tempted to look at people based upon their finances. And they'll be tempted to, to take advantage of people financially as well. And they may not handle church funds appropriately. If you're greedy, you can't be an elder. Now let's quickly look at the character traits. We go from these character flaws, these things that you should not do, to these character traits. These are the things that we should see in an elder. First, hospitable. Hospitable. Let me just say that hospitality is a quality that every Christian should pursue. But Paul makes it especially necessary for elders. Being hospitable during this time meant that you treated your guests and strangers with generosity. If the elders are not friendly and warm towards other people, then I believe the church will reflect that indifference. I know I try to have others in our home as often as we can. Sometimes I'd like to do it more, but, but we do our best. When you're hospitable, it means that you're taking a genuine interest in other people. 
And you're doing all that you can to make them feel welcome. Honestly, hospitality should happen in our church every Sunday morning. Right? It should happen. So, so if you're talking with someone, like we come in here and we like to see our friends and stuff when we talk with them. But if you're talking with someone and you see a visitor come in, you shouldn't just ignore them and be like, well, I'll, I'll go to them in a little bit after I get done talking about this unimportant thing that really doesn't matter. You know? That shouldn't be your attitude. You don't just keep talking to this other person that you already know that you can talk to any time. Unless it really is important, then you probably should keep talking. But we should go and make visitors feel welcome. We should be hospitable to them. We should do all we can to make them feel like they belong here. Hospitable. Elders must be hospitable. Secondly, they must be lovers of good. This means that they love all good things. They're not filling their heart and mind with all the filth of the world that's found online and on TV and on movies. Instead, they're practicing Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's an elder. They're thinking about these things, these honorable and lovely and just and pure and commendable things, excellence. They're thinking about it. Thirdly, they're temperate. They're temperate. The ESV says self-controlled. The idea is controlling yourself and your passions. It's having a sound mind and not being impulsive. The temperate man is not just swayed to these extremes by his fluctuating emotions. He does not easily give in to impulses that would be sinful or even harmful. It is someone who is more level-headed, living in light of their priorities and their commitments. They're temperate. Fourthly, they're upright. Notice I did not say uptight. I said upright. This word actually means to be righteous. In its context, it's probably referring to a man who deals fairly and equitably with others. This is a person that's not just, uh, uh, that, that is just, uh, um, he cares about other people. They don't lie. They don't cheat. They're just in their dealings with other people. They don't steal. They don't, you know, um, if they're selling a car, they don't tell you like, oh yeah, this car's perfect. Nothing's wrong with it when it has all kinds of problems. They don't cheat on their taxes. They're upright. They act responsibly, not irresponsibly. This man doesn't show partiality based upon wealth. He doesn't ignore the poor. An elder's upright. Fifthly, they're holy. This is being separate from sin and evil behavior does not mean that they're separate from sinners because we know that Jesus Christ was the friend of sinners. If an elder is holy, he's not reveling with sinners in their sin. What is he, what is he doing? He's seeking to bring them to repentance. They take God and His Word seriously. They live in obedience to God's Word. <laughs> Lastly, an elder is self-controlled. Self-controlled. Same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, where he speaks of this athlete who uses self-control at all things to win the prize. He does not do anything that might hurt him from reaching his goal. An elder must have control over his harmful desires or their habits that may keep them from knowing Christ in a deeper way. That may keep them from being an effective shepherd of God's flock. The elder is disciplined to spend time alone with God in word and prayer. Self-control is, in fact, the last fruit of the Spirit. And it grows in us as we walk daily by means of the Holy Spirit. 
So an elder is spiritually mature, man of integrity, as seen in their family life and as seen in their character. Finally, lastly, quickly, they must hold firmly to God's word. They must hold firmly to God's word. To be honest, I could preach a whole sermon over this one verse. But we don't have time. I was going to say, get ready, because I'm just going to preach it now, but we're not going to. I'm going to touch briefly on these points. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Look, look at what just jumps out at this text for. Look at what it says. It just says, this is what he has to do. One, he has to hold firm to God's word. He has to hold firm to God's word. This means an elder must be devoted to the word of God. We live in a day and time where this constant appeal to schemes and methods and theories and do this and do that. And they're not based in God's word. If an elder is going to hold firm to God's word, they have to understand God's word, which means they have to actually study God's word. If they're not studying God's word, how are they going to hold firm to it? The study of God's word is a lifelong endeavor. To hold firm implies that an elder has some biblical convictions. They hold firm to the essential truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't change their view based upon the culture. Their standard of morality comes from God's word, not the godless culture around us. Their method of ministry is rooted in God's word, not business practices of the world. They do not love controversy, but they're not going to avoid it either. When it's necessary for them to stand on biblical principle, they're going to stand on biblical principle. So an elder holds firm to God's word. Secondly, they instruct in sound doctrine. Just, it just tells us this is what they do. They instruct in sound doctrine. It's interesting that so often people in church act like doctrine doesn't matter. But here Paul says that an elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. False doctrine will cause all kinds of damage to the people of God. And so out of love and with a kind heart, the elder gives instruction in sound doctrine. Which is to say spiritually mature and healthy doctrine. Doctrine is not divisive or irrelevant to our life. In fact, as we read Paul's letters, we would see that he lays out doctrine first before moving on to the practical aspects of his letter. Paul was not writing to theologians either. He's writing to common people, many of them slaves. In order for an elder to instruct in sound doctrine, guess what? He has to know sound doctrine. And if an elder's like, nah, I don't care about doctrine, it can't be an elder. Now finally, an elder must be able to refute those who contradict the word. Some people think, well, you know, elders are just supposed to be positive all the time. They never confront anybody. They're just like happy-go-lucky, and they're just like little cheerleaders. The enemy is like a roaring lion. He's roaming this earth. Seeking who he can devour. And here's the problem. The enemy has always infiltrated the church. Always. How does he do it? False teaching. 
not based upon God's word. Which is why elders have to hold to the word of God and be bold and confront biblical error. We don't have to be needlessly offensive. But we can't be so nice and, and polite and so pacifistic that we water down and compromise the truth of God's word. And we say things like, well, it could mean this. Or, or, I don't really know what the Bible says in this area. We have to refute those who contradict the truth. And sometimes that means that it's members of your own church. You have to say, no, that's not what God's word says. The point is everything we do should be based on Scripture. And if we want to substantiate what we're doing and what we believe, then we have to know the Scripture to be able to substantiate it by Scripture. Amen. And if we can't do that, if we can't say this is in God's Word, this is why we're doing what we're doing according to Scripture, then we need to stop doing it. Because we're based on something else. And if we are doing things that are not in here, somebody has to stand up and refute it. Somebody has to say, no, that's not what we're going to do. We care about this. We're going to live by this. We're going to obey this. We're going to do this in our church. This is what is most important to us. This is God's letter to us. And we will live by it. Refute those who contradict it. My time is gone. We've got to wrap it up. Sadly, we live in a time when pastors and other big-name Christians are falling like crazy. Often these men lack godly integrity. And unfortunately, in some of the pastors' failings, We've seen a full display of their sin that takes them down. For some, it's been the sin of adultery. They leave their wife and they run off with another woman. For some, it's cases where they have ongoing affairs. They don't come out until later. Nobody knows. They kept it hidden for so long. Some pastors have refused to deal with alcohol abuse in their own life. They've become drunkards, disqualified themselves from service and ministry. Unfortunately, there are times that even when these pastors fail, they just go off to another church, still being pastors. Here's what I've seen is often the case. Sometimes these churches have elders, yes. But what is almost always the case is that these pastors and leaders who fail have no one speaking truth into their life. And they end up disqualified because they lack integrity. They act one way at church and another way at home, and they lack integrity. Men who are elders have to have integrity. They, they, they can't be out there gossiping about their church or gossiping about their pastor and say, well, this is what I think should happen and this is, what, this is what's going on. That's lacking integrity. Amen. 
And I know the focus of this message is on the qualifications for elders. But as I said, we all should be striving to have these qualities in our life. And you can, you, and you, and you can do that. You can strive to have these qualities, but you can't even do that unless you've started the journey and you know Christ as your Savior. So I'd ask you this morning, have you truly trusted in Christ as your Savior? And if not, today can be the day of salvation for you. Today you can start your Christian walk. How do you do that? Well, you do it by trusting in Christ. You can say a prayer to the Lord. It's not this prayer that saves you. It's this recognition of who you are and who He is. And you can call out to God and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's Son. You died to forgive me of my sin. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not magic. Christ saves you. Prayer is just your trust, your expression of trust in Him. If you said that or something like, I'd love to follow up with you. You can come forward. If you're online, you can text the word faith to 309-328-3488. You can even do that in your pew if you want to. Let, lastly, let me ask you, how are you doing in these areas? Are you working towards spiritual maturity? Are you a person of integrity? Is maturity seen in your family life and in your character? Are you holding firm to the Word of God? Finally, our church needs men that are spiritually mature, men of integrity in their home and in their character who are holding firm to the Word of God and they're living their life to please God and not man. Let's close the prayer. Father, thank you for this Word. Thank you for laying out for us in your word. Here's the qualifications. Here's what an elder is to look like. First, you laid out for us that, that churches are to be led by elders. And you've made that abundantly clear. And then you lay out, this is, this is who should be leading you. This is what they are to look like. It's not about gray areas. It's about this is what you say is vital for men to lead the church. And Lord, I pray this morning as we heard your word go forth, God, that we truly asked ourselves, that we laid ourselves barren before you, Lord, and we truly said, search my heart, God. Search my heart. See if there's anything wicked in me. See if there's any way in me that, that I'm not following. And then, Lord, out of our love for you, and out of your abundant mercy and grace towards us, oh, Lord, that we would tune our hearts to you. Bind our hearts to you. May we truly ask ourselves this morning, is Christ King in my life? Will I stand? And that word, do I hold firm to it? Is it evident in me? Then Lord, I pray that someone here this morning, or whenever they hear this message, they don't know you've got to pray today be the day of salvation for them. 
If you've spoken to somebody, they respond. Whether it's through text, whether it's through coming forward, however you need, that we respond to your Lord this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing this morning, we will end up.